0: The difference between reading a spec and understanding it and being able to write one and envisage what if this, what if that, what's the best solution for all cases. When you meet the people who work on the specs, you think, wow, there's another level of thought going on where they can visualise a whole technological system that's not been invented yet. But the reality is no one person can do that because we all make mistakes and we're all fallible and we all have gaps our knowledge. So what you've got is basically the best techie experts from every organisation getting together in a room.
1: Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for The Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. In this episode, we focus on something that we often take for granted and rarely think about, the standards that make our televisions work. Television is something that's incredibly close to my heart. And whilst I work in audio, my dream job would be to make TV. Television, and particularly television drama, has been a passion of mine since I was a teenager. And studying TV was part of my degree. But of course, I'm not alone in my passion. For most people in the UK, TV is a part of our daily lives. But whilst we watch a lot of programmes, it's rare that we think about how they come to appear on our TV screens. Television has changed wildly in my lifetime, and it continues to change both in its form and in the way that it gets to us. With the advent of digital television and smart TVs, it continues to change at a rapid rate. With television being an almost invisible part of our lives, it's important to remember that the physical machines we use have a massive environmental impact. And before making this episode, I'd never even considered the way that tech standards can play a crucial role in helping to avoid the early obsolescence of our TVs. To explore that in detail, I sat down with Restart volunteer Ben Skidmore, who for his day job works at Freeview, which is part of Digital UK, and his colleague Ian Medland from DTG, who as well as talking to me some more about digital standards, took me on a tour of The Zoo. A room full of televisions, which can be tested to see how well the apps and the signals and the specs work.
0: I'm Ben Skidmore. I've been volunteering with the Restart Project since really early, late 2012 it was, when they started in South London and North London. But over time I've become a volunteer coordinator, so I set up training, social skills, Shares for the volunteers. So I get us together periodically to keep building our community and skills internally, because we can't always be fixing and my current job I'm a systems engineer which is kind of a made-up title to say I test things and look after things but I work at Freeview where we test TVs coming to the market so I do a lot of app testing testing smart TVs and I also develop the tools to help us do that better so there's an awful lot of specs involved where a TV has to be Compliant to a load of standards for broadcast and then another load of standards for the smart features. And so we have to understand those and test that everything in every angle is compliant. So, like an app has to meet its own rules and then the TV has to meet its own rules. And if they're both doing the right thing, everything works nicely.
1: How did you end up having this job?
0: So, I studied electronic engineering, which was largely low level stuff and hardware and design. I was led there from passion in life and. I really enjoyed it, and I never thought of going near TV or broadcast, and as I was reading a job description and a job spec, and looking up all the three-letter abbreviations, because there are loads, I was thinking, that's really interesting. I've always wondered how that worked. So by the time I got to interview, I was like, yeah, I want to I want to be part of this and see how TV works in the UK. So I started out doing a lot of basic testing, so you're getting a TV that's almost ready for market, checking all the features, checking all the specs on it, making sure it does what it says, and over time, got more responsibility, specialised in in building in-house systems for testing and testing our own app. So on a smart TV, there's a load of apps from the providers who have the channels. And then there's one app that we provide as well to kind of unlock all that as a feature. And I got involved in developing that, testing that. It became obvious that I like living in the place where you're checking out whether things are meeting specification and designing new stuff. With that framework, you've got a load of freedom, but you have to stick to the rules. Whereas other areas of software development, I'm not so close to, you can basically do what you want and go, here's my product, but I prefer knowing the system.
1: Can you tell us more about the importance of standards for TVs?
0: Yeah, the UK actually kind of leads in terms of TV infrastructure and broadcast infrastructure and always have, you know, we had the BBC from the 1910s working on technology, developing standards and sharing them out so everyone could meet them. So we're talking 100 years ago, radios could conform to a set of standards so that anyone could pick up radio. And that's continued as we've gone digital and as TV came along and as we've moved towards the internet and connectivity as well. So there's a basic spec that says... TVs have to have these buttons on a remote control they have to be able to tune these frequencies to get channels they need to be able to see this many channels at once in a list all the stuff that is totally normal and you just switch the telly on and watch it the guide for instance are actually mandated in a book called the d-book as in digital tv book <laughs>
2: name's Ian Mudland. I'm the director of DTG testing, which is a small part of DTG. So basically what we're here to do is act as an independent testing authority for devices, TV devices, DAB devices coming into the UK market.
1: So DBook, what is that?
2: Go back a little bit in history, go back to the 1990s. We were just starting to look at the introduction of digital TV into Europe was all very complicated. So there was a group that was formed called the DVB, Digital Video Broadcasting Group, who started setting up standards for interoperability, transmission standards, that sort of thing. And then when it came to the UK, we started looking at the idea of bringing in terrestrial TV into the UK it was clear that the standards as they were were a bit too complicated and what we needed to do was profile that down so that it worked specifically for the UK in particular things like we have quite an unusual geographic layout here and we also have ITV in all of the different regional areas that's quite an unusual setup so there was some additional complications what happened was there was a group of companies like the BBC and some of the early manufacturers who got together and created a document which essentially took those international standards being created by the DVB and profiled them and set the parameters for what was required specifically for the UK market and that was published as the D-book. Different bits of it evolve at different paces so the basic Transmission standards are stabilised and they will maybe only be tweaked a few times over 10, 20 years. Other bits of it, primarily the system signalling, which is a bit more complicated and evolves over time, those might be republished every year. Different parts of the system are more stable than others. And then you've got areas where they might put a specification together, but then nobody actually adopts it, so that might be withdrawn, and then new parts are coming along as the platform evolves. Are the specs
1: created just for the UK or... In
2: principle, they can be used anywhere worldwide. Realistically, they're used primarily in the European Union. There's an American equivalent called ATSC, which does a similar task and provides specifications specific for US and for countries based on US transmission standards. But DVB covers the different transmission formats that you see in Europe. It's an enormous set of specifications, all told. They define themselves as a toolbox Of standards from which any platform or a country can go in and and cherry pick and decide well these are the bits that we need and actually we only need a little bit of that so we'll profile it down and we don't care about those standards we don't care about satellite specifications because we're terrestrial platform the dvb standards when you add them together it's a pile a meter thick of documents at any one time you only need a, a few of them when were the specs first defined and written and how many people and parties were involved their current membership is about 200 companies it comes and goes over time different companies have different areas of interest so you've got people like the conditional access providers who will focus on the conditional access and the encryption standards and then you've got the video encoder companies who are interested in making sure that the video standards are correct so it becomes a massive collection of all of the manufacturers all of the developers putting in their little bit to build a a system that works for everyone as a whole.
0: So you've got these kind of two or three big specs interplaying to give you a consistent system that... People can add to.
1: And what does that look like when it doesn't work, when it goes wrong?
0: I'll give you an example because that's how my mind works. If you tune to a channel and an app, it should launch that app and you should go, oh, I went to this channel and up popped this thing and I started using it. And I thought, okay, I'm done with that. So I tuned away. Your TV will then go, oh, you are on channel 203, now you're on 204. And the app should close down because it goes, oh, channel 204 doesn't carry me. That's down to the manufacturers of the TV to go, if channel change happens and the new channel doesn't carry the signals for this app, switch the app off. And if it doesn't, the app will get stuck on and then you'll find that the next thing that should happen doesn't, like watching the content on 204. So sometimes it's really obvious because you go, aha, there's a rule and the manufacturers didn't meet the rule. That's more like a behavioural failure but you could also get something where the tv will crash tvs can crash now because they're digital and that will happen because a rule wasn't followed where you have to keep a piece of data safe and it was read by something else that used it wrong so there's the hard faults and there's the behavioral experience type faults
1: in terms of the history of tv standards what role did your organization play within that
0: digital uk and freeview kind of exist because of the digital switchover so we're talking 20 years now we started getting the adverts going you're going to need a new telly in a few years we're going digital and there was a little bit of a wild west where Sky had a solution and you had companies like On Digital and stuff like that. And Switchco came about to manage the switchover and to look after things like making sure people wouldn't lose TV service when the switchover happened and also to kind of make the platform better. So if you look at that period, a big job was looking at the entire UK and going, right, we've got transmitters here, 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 and they can reach here. And there are these. 300,000 people who, if you change frequencies about that, that, and that, they're going to actually lose signal because they're in a valley or up a hill. And we made sure all those people were contacted. And if they needed an adjustment to their aerial, they could get it. And if they needed a new aerial, they were looked after. So it was about keeping the standard of service up for TV. That grew into an ongoing job as we amalgamated the digital offerings. So the main free to air digital offerings now work on the basis that. Lots of content providers get together, they put up their own, what you call a multiplex, so you've got eight channels, say, on one frequency, and all the information about what's on and when that comes in your guide is actually compiled into one big library by us and then rebroadcast. So if you're tuned to the BBC, your TV can still see the guide for ITV, Channel 4, and know what's going to be on next, and that gives you a better experience to look at the guide and choose what to watch next whereas in some countries you can only see the guide for the channels related to what you're watching so that's one part of the role in recent years with smart tvs there's been a project called freeview play that's uh, about the connected smart tv ecosystem so that's the large two parts of what we do is looking after the broadcast relationships for free to air tv and looking after the free connected tv stuff
1: how did the digital switchover go was it something that everybody did and and were you around when that digital switch over happened
0: so speaking relative terms it went a lot better than it could have in the sense that it could have been just like on this date 2012 we're going to switch off analog telly and if you haven't got a new one sorry but instead what happened was by then some people bought new TVs no already the people who needed the antenna stuff looking at had had a contact and generally been taken care of by the deadline but also what happened over those five ten years of planning is companies like freeview came along where instead of having to buy a new tv you get a tuner box instead of every single household in the uk buying a new telly in a five-year time span a lot of people went i don't really want to buy a 300 pound bit of technology i only watch telly a bit and they went out and bought a box for 20 or 30 quid or 50 at the time maybe it unlocked digital tv and it smoothed that transition over and i think that revolutionized it because it, it could have been a hard Deadline, and instead it was a uh, look. You got several options, and early adopters can early adopt, and people who were going to buy a TV anyway did, and those people who could have been left behind, and that's where we would have said, "Oh, we've failed people who can't afford a new TV." or people who are older and don't justify it or aren't technologically in the know to get what they need. And we help those people keep getting the free service.
1: And I guess a byproduct of that is that the technology that they had would have been able to last for as long as possible. People will not have been throwing as many TVs away.
0: Yeah, we didn't have 18 million analogue tellies in landfill immediately. I mean, I only got my first proper digital TV about two or three years ago because I've always bought second-hand or bought broken stuff and fixed it. So I was able to survive off of other people's upgrades for a lot longer.
1: And also there's the option now to use your laptop or your computer as your TV, which I used to do for quite a few years, although I've got a digital TV now. That also is good from the restart point of view.
0: Yeah, you know, a generation came in who were really internet savvy. And as they started moving out of their parents' homes into student dorms or shared houses and living alone, it became the thing that they went, I don't need a telly. I only watch a little bit of this or a little bit of that. And you know, things like Netflix and other on demand have, have come along that were on every platform. I think that was one of the big things that made them popular is they're not just in smart TVs, they're on your phone and on your computer. But you'll also see that there is still a thing of wanting to sit on the sofa at the TV. And what I like is we're getting to a point where it's all there rather than leaving anything behind. Different household viewing habits are still really supported.
1: How did the switchover affect access and reception and signal and stuff like that in rural areas and other kind of places where it's hard to reach with signals?
0: So a big part of the workload was to make sure that we were looking at that in a very deep Levels, so not just going oh, is this antenna going to switch off or get less power? It's actually working out almost down to the individual household levels of service. So this is actually happening again now because there's a project where the original frequencies used for analog TV obviously had to be left alone while digital TV switched on alongside it. So separate frequencies were used, and now that we've fully switched off analog TV, those frequencies are unused and they're valuable because frequency space is limited. You can hop frequencies a bit, but there's not an infinite amount of bandwidth. And now we. We've got mobile phone communications and and Wi-Fi and all sorts. So the project is basically to analyze those frequencies alongside digital TV and shift them around to make it more efficient and free up whole bands, which will then be auctioned off so that groups like mobile phone data providers can use that because we are still adding to 4G and we're still building in new bandwidth. So the process of that is about seeing who's going to be affected, letting them know and offering support. So Digital UK have a project where every two weeks or so there's a change where one frequency will change change or an antenna will switch off like a broadcast antenna and we know that there's 30,000 homes in this region of Shropshire who may be affected so we've put a box on their screen on their channels they get locally saying on this date there'll be a change here's our phone number you should retune your tv before then and then we've got a contact center where they will contact us and say I've lost BBC2 what do I do and and we talk them through a retune or we explain and that catches a lot of the people who need support And there might be one or two who go, oh, no, it's not working entirely. And we will then arrange for an engineer to look at their antenna. I mean, it's not just us as Digital UK. It's actually a project alongside the broadcasters, the infrastructure companies who own the antennas. So it's about making sure that no one's left behind.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of different companies involved. Digital Signal for our TV is not a nationalised service. How do all of those companies play together?
0: It's a very collaborative industry. So while it's not technically nationalised, Obviously the BBC are part funded by the government and have a responsibility therefore to not just do what they want but to deliver stuff that is in the interest of all the people, right? The BBC tend to lead on technology development. They've got a huge R&D force, they always have and they do that and then they share it out as standards or as procedures that other people can follow. And then the other main broadcasters so itv channel 4 channel 5 you know the the big players have a similar interest in keeping up with that tech contributing to testing and it benefits everyone to all take part for instance in the states a broadcaster so they might have several channels like NBC, for instance own their own antennas and their own infrastructure and they will develop content pay to have it transported around the country by cable or satellite or whatever broadcast out of antennas and whoever's near the antenna gets that channel but that same viewer might not get other channels from another provider because they might have an antenna elsewhere whereas in the UK we have an antenna such as my local here in South London's Crystal Palace and all the content providers send the data to a company called Archiva who have the infrastructure of the broadcast antennas and the data transport and they will then put it all together and send it up which means if my TV can see Crystal Palace I've got all the content for London and we continue to do that so that's not just convenient but it's better for the viewer we piggyback on the same data infrastructure as all our partners so Freeview and Digital UK are basically joint ventures primarily owned by two or three or four companies like BBC ITV, Channel 4, Sky. It's collaborative and the Freeview Play smart platform is the same thing. We work with the partners to make a better offering so that when someone buys a TV with the Freeview Play badge, you know they've got a good base amount of content. So there can be political discussions about which way you want to lead a project when it has four parents with different interests, but largely our interest is getting along.
1: Are international digital providers like Netflix or Amazon, are they also involved in the mix now?
0: Involved? Involved, yes, but only by being there. They're not really steering us or leading us. Because one could argue they're competitors, right? Because if someone's watching Netflix over the internet, they're not watching telly off an antenna. But the reality is people have diverse viewing habits. I like to think as a big TV viewer, I've always loved TV and my family centered around it. It's about making it better for the viewer, which means adding in more, not competing. But we have to work with people like that because... They're not going to go away and we don't want to go away. So the best thing to do is figure out how you make a diverse offering better. You know, the BBC pays to produce content, ITV, Channel 4, they pay to produce content, which means Netflix can license it or we can work on co-producing things. So I think we have to really view it as a big collaboration because if you're going to compete, you'll eventually be strong-armed because they're global forces, you see. And that's the difference is the BBC produces content that's world-class with a UK budget, whereas Netflix has the budget to produce world-class content by investing in it.
1: (laughs) What do these specifications do to help environmental issues such as the longevity of Devices.
2: Go to one of the meetings where these standards are created. There is a lot of to and fro, and everybody gets involved. The result of that is that you end up with a specification which is robust. As soon as you've got a robust specification, you can build on it in the long term. If you're spinning your wheels on a specification that's changing every six months, then you've got this risk of devices becoming obsolete very quickly. Whereas if you've got a good, robust platform on which you're based, then you can increment you need innovation but there's always that underlying platform which is always going to work and that means that the TVs that are created based on these standards can be reused and you're not looking at throwing them away on a regular basis. Back in the old analog TV days the assumed lifespan for a TV was about 10 years. When digital TV first came in that dropped quite considerably down to about five, six years. It's actually coming back up again now because the platform is robust and has enough function that people don't feel the need to to move them on quite so quickly. What tends to happen is they start in the living room and then when you get a new one in the living room, which is normally a couple of inches larger than the last one was, the old one goes into the first bedroom and then the second bedroom and then on. It keeps the underlying standards fixed so that you don't suddenly lose BBC One when you switch on a TV that's 10 plus years old. How will these specifications
1: help for the future and in the future?
2: The specifications are evolving as the platform evolves. So we're seeing a lot of activity now in interactive Services so smart TV platforms, which are not specific to a particular content provider, we've got international standards, which mean that you can create catch-up services like BBC iPlayer and ITV Hub and 4OD, and I think that's where we're going to go. That that will be the future direction. Increasingly, we are aware of the environmental concerns associated with this market, it is something that we're actively bringing into every conversation that we have now. So it, you know, part of the DTG's remit, which is revised every year, part of that remit from this year forwards is to ensure that we include environmental considerations whenever we look at new specifications. <laughs>
1: And how do standards like TV standards, the kind of standards that you work with, how do they influence the repairability and the lifetimes of our products?
0: I think just as important with anything smart and, and technological rather than just electrical is functionality. So you could have a phone that works great. But if it's five years old, it's probably not useful anymore. And smart TVs were going down that road. The idea of Freeview Play was to basically say, look, here is a standard platform. And instead of the apps being developed, individually for each telly which means loads of work for let's say 10 manufacturers when you look at the smaller ones you develop it to a standard called hbb tv which is hybrid broadcast broadband tv so it's saying it's a tv it's got an antenna but it's got the internet and that framework of spec says apps have to do x y and z and so we make sure the tvs meet the spec And then we ask that the app developers meet the same spec. So the app just runs on TV. And that five-year-old TV that met the spec, a new app can come out. And if it meets the same specifications, it will run. So firstly, apps don't die because they're maintained within that framework. But new apps reach old tellies. So that's the really cool thing i mean actually just yesterday channel 5 changed their app from demand 5 on freeview play to my 5 and there was maybe a year of software development and loads of testing but instead of then going great next year's tellies get it every freeview play device back as far as 2015 when they launched, gets that app. So I think a big part of the spirit of that development was to say, look, TVs shouldn't just stop working. So even though that's a software solution, it still is about, can you keep using it?
1: TVs are an expensive thing to buy, so you don't want to be buying them. I mean, it's bad enough having to buy phones frequently, although you don't have to, I guess. There are lots of different ways that you can extend the lifetime of your phones. But TVs are not just expensive, they're big. These days, it seems like they're getting wider and wider screens. People are basically buying digital walls for the Uh, front rooms and so when you're working with big technology you really don't want to be replacing that frequently
0: right you know i mean everything takes resources physically bigger stuff takes more resources a really good way we've been going is that they get more energy efficient which is nice and it almost justifies that culturally bigger tvs are becoming a thing but you know like anything you shouldn't be throwing it away for Any reason other than it's not possible to repair. So a software problem is even less forgivable than a hardware problem.
1: How is Digital UK's work funded?
0: Being a joint venture, we have an operating budget. We don't take a profit or take money at all in any real way. We take some licensing fees. We have a board and the board consists of our parents like BBC ITV. And they get together and make decisions and then grant the operating budget so a big thing that happened recently is we would had a five-year operating budget and we signed a new agreement to continue having another five years interesting stuff in the pipeline about making tv more accessible about moving towards ip delivered tv so that when we start needing to switch off broadcast in some amount of time hopefully not too soon tvs will be ready you won't even know but your tv will switch to picking it up off the internet
1: when and if digital gets switched off and it does move to internet provided tv will that mean that there's lots of obsolete digital technology and stuff like that i mean is there a way of recycling that well
0: i like to think that exactly what happened 10 15 years ago with free view boxes can happen again so a modestly priced set-top box will go okay that telly is basically a big screen with speakers and it can do that i mean right now actually pcs do that i at one point was plugging in my pc and probably watching even amounts of stuff through the pc and live telly now i've got quite a nice smart tv i use the features a whole lot but i still have my pc for the odd thing so i think that As people get more savvy and learn to use their phones and to use computers when they've got laptops and tablets and things, I think it will transition quite naturally. And again, there'll be a gap in the market of people who don't have a PC, aren't tech savvy, don't want to buy a new telly yet because they've got a nice one, but it's old. And those people will get set-top boxes. I look forward to that. I mean, we do have Freeview Play has about three or four models of set-top box available, but they're not as popular because in general set-top boxes aren't as popular as they used to be. The main people using them are the ones who like to record TV but they're there and it's an option so no TV left behind
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we're in the Receiver Zoo it says on the door as you come in and it's a room full of shelves metal shelves and all of those shelves have TVs on, a lot of
2: TVs. So this is the representative receiver collection, as it's officially known, but we just call it the zoo. So essentially, whenever a new device comes into the UK market, we get... One copy of it and we put it into the zoo so we have here a tv that represents every tv in the market now obviously you've got different sizes of screens and we only keep one size from the perspective of understanding how a tv is working how it operates each of the systems is represented here
1: Right, so when you need to test to see if the tweaks that you're doing are going to work on all of the different devices, this is where you come?
2: Yes, precisely. So, for instance, when a broadcaster is changing the configuration of how they're playing out a service they will bring it here and we play it through every TV and just make sure that it doesn't clash I don't know if anyone remembers the analog switch off back in 2009 what happened was every region before it was switched over we'd play that whole scenario out within the zoo so we'd simulate all of the different new services going in we'd play it through every TV and make sure that there was no problem with the services being received it was very useful the first couple of regions that we tried there were some TVs that just couldn't cope with the number of channels that they were seeing so we had to get in touch with the manufacturers they then went round and updated the boxes doing a, an over the air update fixed those problems And then when we then went on to try subsequent regions, the problem had disappeared. So by the end, when we came to London, which was the final big hurdle, the whole region switchover went swimmingly.
1: These are quite modern TVs in this part of the zoo. I mean, do we go back into the old history of TVs? Is that here?
2: So unfortunately, space... In London, being what it is, we have a limited space. So this is currently, I think it's about 350 devices all told. And this represents the last five years of TVs. We have a couple more years worth downstairs but we end up having to do a culling process every year or so. When you push and they fall off the end of the shelf, we take them downstairs for a couple of years and then they go for disposal after that. We try to keep as long a period as possible. Because the TVs in people's homes may be quite old. Yes, absolutely. We try at any one time to represent as big a percentage of the overall market as we possibly can. But realistically, there's a point at which we know TVs aren't going to be updated. So even if we find a problem here it's unlikely that a fix will be found for it. You went ahead and sort of turned on quite a few of the TVs to give an
1: idea of what this room is like. Is it a common thing for them all to be on or is that a rarity just for this demonstration?
2: Uh, No, it's quite common for them all to be switched on. So when someone comes in to do a test here, they'll normally bring between four and five people along with them and each of those will be testing a set of racks at any one time. So yes, it can get quite loud.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's quite overwhelming to be in here testing, particularly if you were doing it after a, a night out or whatever like that. Yes, absolutely, (laughs) I, I, I would imagine. So, yeah, we'll move around a bit to get a bit more of an idea. Yeah, like you say, 350 TVs, quite a long room, not enough to contain all of the TVs in TV history, but certainly a lot. Are there special precautions or anything that you've taken in terms of the way that the room's set up to keep the TVs kind of working for longer?
2: Yes, so the room is fully air-conditioned. What we also do is we have a gas fire suppression system installed. You can imagine that once these are a few years old, if they break, then we're never going to get a replacement. So we have to consider the, uh, the overall value of the collection and if it were ever to go up in flames, it would be essentially irreplaceable. So we have to look hard at keeping it protected.
1: And I guess, do the older ones go out of operation just through natural causes, if
2: you see what I mean? They do, less so now. A few years ago, we'd have especially low end set top boxes, you know, the, the little supermarket. 20 20 pound ones had a limited lifespan usually things like the power supplies they have they external power bricks and that sort of thing would break and we can replace those but after that I guess our biggest problem was things like plasma screens where the, the picture quality would just degrade over time but for the sake of what we actually do here it doesn't matter if the picture quality is not great right. as long as you can see what's going on on there right. but yeah these ones i don't expect any of these to give up the ghost the only problem we seem to be having at the moment is people keep running into them whilst they're going around doing the testing we've got broken screens all over the place which we have to get replaced so
1: right yeah i guess that's the tricky thing when you're walking down one of these aisles it's yeah. like don't turn around with a bag and yeah <laughs> sort of, i'll keep keep that in mind actually because i have trailing leads going all around me i mean i guess that's a good sign though that the tvs are lasting longer
2: Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, I wouldn't expect any of these to not give you a good healthy lifespan. The only problem being, I guess, around the interactive services and the, um, and the like, especially you, you think about the likes of Netflix and Amazon. They have a different model where they're trying to keep pushing ahead on standards, and sometimes some of the older devices get left behind on that. But they'll still work fine for your BBCs and the ITVs and, and Channel 5, all of that sort of thing. Right. for uh, for a good long while yet great right. brilliant um yeah is there any other part of this room that, that you should show me or i guess i'm i'm just used to it it all seems like magic but uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's 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 all just steadfast engineering right it's, i mean this is just your workplace this is just <laughs> this is just the workplace yeah, yeah. absolutely
1: right brilliant well thank you very, very much for for showing me around the zoo and for answering all my questions
2: you're more than welcome Thank <laughs> you.
1: What kind of people enjoy working on standards and testing?
0: Well it comes down to, to you know there are people who are very technical and very geeky but I think there's a special, a special kind of person I mean there's something that I've always had the difference between reading a spec and understanding it and being able to write one and envisage what if this, what if that what's the best solution for all cases when you meet the people who work on specs you think wow there's another level of thought going on where they can visualise a whole technological system that's not been invented yet but the reality is no one person can do that because we all make mistakes and we're all fallible and we all have gaps in our knowledge so what you've got is basically the best techie experts from every organization getting together in a room of six or ten or maybe 20 people
1: and uh, earlier on you sort of said you were a fan of television and your family have been sort of organized around television do you want to expand a little bit more on that it seems interesting that you're now providing the provision of something that you love that's maybe a dream job I don't know
0: yeah without knowing it So I think that a lot, maybe the majority of homes in the UK, centre around the TV. I don't think that's a bad thing, and maybe people misunderstand when I say it. But, you know, the living room generally has places to sit comfortably, places to watch TV, and maybe somewhere to eat. I mean, in my family, we actually... We were in a small flat and we didn't have like a dining table, so we put a tablecloth on the floor, like a picnic, every day for dinner. And you know, in that case, you're sitting in front of the TV, the sofas are behind you, and generally the TV was off. We were a bit formal, but you finished dinner, pack up, put the tablecloth away, land back on the sofa, and and put the TV on. And I, I was one of six, so you know, between four and seven people in the home, depending on who's living there at the time and how old people are, there's a lot of opinion. But you do you come together as a family. You don't go and sit in your room and do what you want. So there was a lot of debate about what do we watch. And this is in the good old days of of primetime TV and no on-demand and and no devices to distract you. So, you know, Wednesday at 9pm was Desperate Housewives and when Lost was on you couldn't wait to see the next episode and that's not unique to me. We have a culture of good telly in the UK and being into good telly. I wouldn't have said telly was a passion when I graduated uni because at the time I was thinking of circuitry and amplifiers and programming but the reality is every single day you go home and you probably watch some TV and you'll probably bond with your family over it or you'll get to work and talk to someone about it and, and you know TV and film is an art form and we consume it you know it's not a distraction it's not just something you do so I, I you know in a positive way I think I'm a big consumer of that art
1: yeah I mean the, and the quality has has gone up in lots of ways in terms of television because I've always been a TV watcher and, and, a, and a fan of it my dad made documentary films of cinema and tv veterans card is what got me into to see films for free when I was a teenager with him when you think back of like the quality of what things were like and there were brilliant gems of, of of great television back in the day but there was also a lot of like weird like when you watch it now I mean some of my favorite stuff doesn't necessarily fully stand up to time like I was a big fan of quantum leap for example and and it does stand up in some ways but certainly you're like this is not what we think of as tv now it's paced differently it's much more formulaic in the old days and it was based around having to have a schedule that worked for a family, worked for everyone, offered different things at different times and was regular and you could set your lives around it whereas that's very much changed now I guess quite a lot of people in families are watching five different shows at the same time in similar circumstances to you where you were growing up it's great that change and it's given us a lot of good stuff but maybe I guess it's taken away some stuff from us as well I don't know
0: I really well I, I actually I'm going to catch myself here I was going to say I really like the things that everyone watches those shows are so good everyone sees them weirdly sometimes I pick up on that and go I don't want to watch that everyone's, yeah. everyone's talking about it all the time but the reality is it's great content, right? And, you know, whether you're into high fantasy or tense thrillers or, like, science fiction, there's something that is that good that is worth seeing if you're into that genre. And there's going to be people talking about it and waiting for it. And I think maybe we've just got better at that, like, specialising you know there, there is all of it out there but you know episodics are a really a really big thing still because even if it's a whole series and you're going to binge it you still can't wait there's something about recognising a good bit of art and enjoying it and then going okay more please i mean if you've got a favourite band you, you know when their album comes out and it's the same thing actors are artists producers cinematographers are artists and i think luckily we have a great delivery mechanism where it's accessible to everyone like as you're saying you, you know you had a, a cinema pass because that was a, a passion for you but with tv it's quite it's got quite a low bar of entry to, right. to see all of that you know and that's, that's where it should be in my opinion because it also has the ability to inform, educate, entertain
1: Right, which is the original brief of the BBC back in Wreathian days. Yes. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting thing with how TV's gone, I mean I guess as, as well in this country, as you said earlier on, we were primed in a way for the golden age of TV that we now have the BBC was, back in the day I don't know if it necessarily is now but it was spearheading a lot of great works of televisual art, like Our Friends in the North or like the very early Kitchen Sink dramas and mm-hmm. stuff like that, like showing working class voices and stuff like that. We've been prepped for great tv and now it's everywhere around us it's almost like it's too much in some ways like there's so much good tv you don't have time to watch it all now whereas in the old days you could definitely watch all the good tv that was out there
0: oh big time yeah and again back to the water cooler chat it used to be everyone had seen that whereas now you you kind of pick your battles and either you don't have time to catch it or you don't want it spoiled so you wait till later but luckily because all of our viewing habits are also Quite intense. There's still someone to talk to about it, someone else's court. It's more of what you want, you know. I mean, EastEnders, and, and if you look at soap in general, everyone watched something whereas now you might go I don't really get that kind of drama so I watch a weekly cartoon and you've found your people whether it's on the internet or at work that also like that so we've just got more choice and you can choose towards what you like but there is also as you say a wealth of content you're never going to watch it all I definitely personally have got like a to-do list of I know this is great it's been recommended I can't watch it this month but one day it might be in a year that's kind of interesting that we have an almost oversaturation of media it's a nice problem to have
1: yeah, absolutely. I've I've always got like a working list on my phone where I'm like, oh, that sounds good. I'll, I'll write that down. It never runs out. It, it, it always grows, even when I watch a few of it. And in terms of like Restart and the work that you do at Digital UK, do you see like much of a crossover in those two things? And also, how did you get involved in Restart in the first place?
0: So Restart, basically, someone knew me really well and sent an email going, they're having this party where you like take screwdrivers and fix stuff. Sounds like your kind of thing. And I saw it and went, yeah. <laughs> And I went down there and it was great and I mean I don't know how I got pulled in so quickly but you know within a couple of years I'd been to all the major events where the Restart Project went from fixing stuff in community centres locally to the founders to having an identity and events in public places as in big public events and eventually lobbying and and policy stuff and becoming a a real official company. I was kind of there for all of it but I don't know how I managed to stay along for the ride. I think I just turned up with screwdrivers a lot and you know yeah that, that keenness there's like a little satisfaction when you fix something that makes you want to do again, it's, it's it's a little bit kind of Pavlovian, isn't it? You fix it and you get a pat on the head and go, that was cool. yeah." <laughs> and, you, and the next time you hear something's broken and that follows through at work. So my role is actually there's no real hardware involved. As an electronic engineer, I was kind of a noob when I started and didn't know a lot about internet stuff and, and didn't know anything about TV. But what I did have is the desire to understand how things work and also how to fix things and how to help people. So, you know, over time, we're quite a small company and we never had like an IT person So we kind of developed a role of basic IT support, which is, is your printer plugged in? Do you know the Wi-Fi password? Is your screen plugged in? Have you started it again? You know, I took it on with a colleague as a kind of a a part of my role, and that improved the camaraderie and the morale at work. And that's grown into like, a: have now got screwdrivers in my desk, and if some furniture breaks, I can have a look at it. And being a fixer is a personality trait that I I take to work, and I love it because it's also made me more three-dimensional. I quite like it when you get somewhere and you become known for not just your job role, but who you are so i can't switch that off when i'm at work but we don't do an awful lot of hardware we tend to do mostly domestic eit stuff
1: yeah although i mean that's still a part of what restart does as well there's a software element to fixing stuff now like those two things aren't a binary anymore and, and maybe they never were
0: yeah that's a really interesting point maybe they were always connected and we didn't realize um but you know a big part of it and I've learned a lot doing kind of basic IT support is people don't always use computers the way you think I had my first computer aged about 10 because I was interested so by the time you're using it for school which they didn't really get us to do that until I was about 16 and then by the time you're programming in university doing a degree and stuff and using it at work using office I was very literate I was familiar with interfaces and screens and mouse and keyboard but some people they were 40 when they started having to email for work it's not about saying no you have to become a geek it's about how do I enable you to do your job and make the technology not get in your way and empathy goes a long way I've learned a lot from watching how people work and trying to build better systems of do people need to administer their own printer or should we set up an automated system or just offer to help so there's been that thing as you say of, of software fixing is just as important and when you start looking after 50 people's laptops you see that 90% of the problems are three simple things and you learn how to support people who aren't necessarily going to become self fixers in that context and you're enabling them so yeah, that, that's true of Restart as well. While we try and share skills, and and that is what we do. We, we show people how to fix stuff. Sometimes you're not trying to get them to go away and never come back. You're trying to get them to get a bit more hands-on with their gear. So same thing at work. I try and build systems where people become more empowered to fix their own stuff. <laughs>
1: It's encouraging and hopeful to hear that environmental concerns are becoming part of the priorities of DTG and that the work that Ben and Ian do has a history of helping to prevent mass obsolescence through careful planning and standards. Technological devices are not just products that we buy that operate on their own. They operate within complex systems and people are the creators and caretakers For these systems. And whilst there's clearly a lot of work being done by people like Ben and Ian to make those systems work well, it seems to me that it's a good idea for us to try and understand those systems so that we can make informed choices that will help us to keep our technology working for longer. As I said at the start, I've done a lot of thinking about television as a medium in my life. But until making this episode, I'd never really thought about television as a technology. And I think that there's a danger with the tech that we use all the time that we start to not see it as tech. And certainly it's hard for me to think about TV in the same way as I used to now that I've listened to Ben and Ian. As the work being done by the people creating television standards demonstrates technology often involves lots of people doing very different jobs that all need to happen in order to make our technology exist and to make our technology work and if we're going to change the relationship that we have with our technology and build towards a sustainable future it's going to need everybody in whatever position they're in to work together Collectively, collaboration between different kinds of people doing different kinds of work is possibly the only way for us to achieve our collective goals. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4FM. And a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the Restart Project. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant Isabel, who did the research and planning for this episode. It's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye,
2: everybody.